Hi, I'm Tim Sanova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck, a podcast about, well, that. In this episode, we're exploring uncertainty, transitions, and moving forward in ambiguity. Something I imagine most of us feel like we're getting pretty used to having lived the past several years amid a global pandemic. Maybe to put a finer point on the topic, though, we'll be exploring how these things show up in organizations, and in one organization in particular, San Francisco's Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. And we'll discuss how they're approaching this in their evolving work. For the conversation, I'm joined by YBCA's board chair, Renika Kerr, and its CEO, Sarah Fenske-Bahat. Both of their bios are linked in the episode description, so let's get going. Renika and Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tim, for having us. Why don't we get started with how you typically introduce yourselves and the work you do? And Renika, would you like to get things rolling for us? So my name is Renika Kerr, and um, I am a South Asian woman. I have uh, black hair. I am here in... um, Oakland, and I have a mural in the background um, that is my happy place, which is the mountains with the fogs in the midst, uh, or the fog in the midst, I should say. And I am wearing a teal green shirt and a black vest today. I come from a background in the nonprofit sector. I've spent uh, over 17 years in philanthropy and been lucky enough to work on all of the issues that kind of cut across poverty alleviation touch upon social justice. And the thing that makes me tick is all of the ways in which we can use all the tools in our toolbox to live well with one another and to contribute in ways that leave things better than we have found it. Sarah, how about you? I am a white woman with blonde hair, glasses. I am sitting in front of a painting that has a woman holding an empty vessel and a bunch of checkerboard print on her dress. I'm wearing a very loud shirt next to that print, which is maroon with light blue and a bunch of ruching. Um, There's a plant grounding the background, and I'm sitting in light from my window. I introduced myself and my work as being grounded in community and has typically been at the intersection of economics and policy. And so I began my career working in New York City government in the years post 9-11. I worked on the recovery of lower Manhattan and saving jobs for New York. I then went to go work as a financial regulator. I've been a banker. I moved to San Francisco 15 years ago and decided I wanted to try to have some fun again. I found economics as sort of a typical first generation in my family going to college, needing to study something that would pay off my student loans. By the time I had done that, I was moving here and decided to go to design school. And so I added a layer of creative practice to the work that I had done, ultimately ending up teaching and then running the program that I had learned in. It was called the, apropos actually for this conversation, it's called the Design MBA which we call the Masters in Business Ambiguity, actually. (laughs) I um, joined the YBCA Fold first as a fellow when I was teaching in that program, looking at economic well-being of families and how to talk about that creatively. 
I ended up joining the board, becoming the board chair, and then stepping into this seat over the last year as we've begun this transition. So I'd like to think of my practice as one that marries creative practice and a deep background in community work, specifically focused on economic well-being. Before we get too much more into the varying levels of ambiguity and uncertainty and transition, I want to spend a little bit of time on the two of you, because you both have a a close and supportive working relationship, and that's something that can't be said for every board chair and CEO. I'm curious, what do you attribute that to, and what do you do to continue to invest in that working relationship? So Sarah and I have known each other since 2004. We met in a public leadership program that was, you know, oriented around service called Coro. Over the years have just developed such a deep friendship and a deep admiration and respect for one another, both personally and professionally. I think that that is really served as the foundation for us coming together to work with one another in this way. So I would say it's a really huge foundation of trust, but then also steeped in a couple values that we care a lot about, which is, I think both of us are drawn to service and to think of ourselves as contributors, again, small contributors to kind of the big thing that we're all swimming in, whatever that might be at the moment. And also that we care a lot about our efficacy in terms of getting things right And I think this is important because she and I, in our space with one another, whether it's public or private, what we aim to do is to be as authentic, you know, sort of behind the scenes as we are in any other space that we occupy, but also make sure that we are providing 100% kind of transparency and candor in what's happening. And so what's interesting is I'm, as I'm reflecting on just even the year of work that we've done in this context it's really fluid, the way in which we kind of can critique the work, we can offer feedback to one another. There really isn't even a mode that we go into, you know, sometimes relationships are structured, we're like, okay, let's give each other feedback. It's not like that. It's kind of whatever the day is presenting or whatever we're talking about, there's this really deep comfort in interrogating how we can be our best selves in service of the work and to make sure that we are holding ourselves to a pretty high standard and and also the work as well. The only things that I want to add to this are that we didn't go into relationship in 2004 when we first met aspiring to do this kind of thing. We were both very grounded in being willing to tackle difficult questions and looking to build our toolboxes and to Radhika's point, how effective we were in the work that we were doing, aspiring to leadership, aspiring to be of service. And I think what I would just offer is that when you've known someone for this length of time, literally decades almost at this point, you not only see the ways they show up as the world changes, as circumstance change, but personally as they grow. And from my point of view, when I think about us as women in our late 20s, I see a hunger in us and a desire to do work that's really aligned with what we think matters. When I look at us now, I just see us continuing to grow in ourselves while doing the same. We started in Coro and then Renica actually joined me in the design program that I just mentioned. I was like, hey, I think we need to go learn this thing over here. 
And then the same was true at YBCA, like, hey, I think there's this really interesting thing going on over here. Can we do that thing together? I would say we're not very outcome oriented in some ways. I think we're discovery oriented and collaborative. And that shows up differently than I think some professional collaborations do. In that, I think we are very, very fortunate. In my own work, people ask me about like what nonprofits or what arts organizations are doing really great people operations work. And I often say like, you know, I grew up in arts organizations. And so I'm looking outside of this sector for things that are examples that can be then maybe applied or retrofitted. Both of you are coming from outside the quote unquote traditional art spaces. And I'm wondering how that framing informs the way you work. Both if that is an accurate statement that you both consider yourself coming from outside the traditional art spaces, but how does that show up in the work that you're doing and, and inform the work that you're doing in ways that are helpful and then maybe ways that might be more challenging? For me, it's a question of whether you consider an MBA program at an art school an art space. And that is totally debatable. I don't think it falls into the category of other MBA programs and we're definitely the strangest thing that CCA did, California College of the Arts. I think of the missing piece, you know, like the rolling Pac-Man trying to find his missing piece. The MBA program does not fit in necessarily to art school either. And so for me, I can't really speak to traditional art environments. That feels very true. Those feel inaccessible even to me. I have a whole set of judgments that I think about when I imagine what those might look like. And I think some of the Ways that that shows up for me are the ways that like the American Association of Museums talks about decolonizing collections and things like that. When I think about the purpose of the work that we do at YBCA, I am here because our purpose feels like it's a community purpose, sitting in a different place than just being a traditional arts organization. We don't collect. We are intentionally trying to share with this community a bounty of creative practice that really is about engagement. When I think about my practice over the last 20 or whatever years, having a grounding in community work, I think is critical to the work that we do at YBCA. It gives me a much wider variety of tools to pull from, whether those be financial, whether those be design, whether those be collaborative. It's a different bias in terms of how we manage the work that we do here, than one of a traditional institution. And I hope that that means in a similar way to I think an MBA program at an art school is really interesting. I hope that that becomes something here that offers an interesting lens and take on the ways that an arts organization can show up for a community. I've spent the majority of my career in philanthropy supporting social entrepreneurs who really are artists that are in service of change through using their creative practices and capital, have created solutions to some of the most pressing challenges that we're faced with as a society. And in order for them to become efficacious, they've had to build organizations and scale organizations and be steeped in a few of the tools that Sarah named, right? So you have to design your program. You have to make sure that you are proximate with the community that you seek to serve, that you have representation and lived experiences at all sort of levels in your organization, and that you are able to measure your impact. You are able to tell your story. 
and you're able to raise, you know, incredible amounts of capital in order to ensure that the work is sustainable and outlives its genesis, if you will. When I think of that spine, I think it absolutely marries or mirrors what YBCA is about in terms of our mission, our vision, and the community piece that Sarah talked about. And it's in service of using art in all of its different forms to allow all of us, again, to kind of have an experience that leaves us potentially changed, but also has much wider impact in in society. You both have worked in a lot of different places and with a lot of different people. And I'm thinking about this from the perspective of where we are right now in just history, where a lot of people are have been questioning, how do I want my life to be when it might not be the way you know it was in January 2020, where people are questioning their connection to work, their connection to place, their connection to meaning and purpose. I'm wondering for both of you, how do you answer that question for yourself? And for people who might be like, this isn't the work that I want to do. I want to be doing something else. Maybe it's a different sector. Maybe it's a different role. What advice would you have for people who are wrestling with that question right now? That's a really big question. I mean, I spent the pandemic as an educator, the closed parts of the pandemic, primarily as an educator. And so the existence I have at YBCA is very different, which is a public resource type institution that's very much open. I've gone from having my whole life on Zoom in a classroom to being a part of an organization that's being looked to to um, reconnect people in this community, which it's a pretty drastic shift in terms of my experience. For me, my favorite job was definitely working for New York City post 9-11. That's counterintuitive for a lot of people. I think a lot of people view that to be really hard and sad and draining. For me, it was in hindsight, really formative to be able to see that I individually could work on something that allowed a community to recover and that I could find myself playing a positive role in a very difficult time in a way that aligned with my values and my skill sets. To me, the work that we're doing here now is a real echo of that work. I see a lot of similarities For those of you who might be listening and not know, San Francisco was closed, especially cultural institutions, much longer than many parts of the country during COVID. As you might also know, there are a lot of layoffs going on in the tech community, which changes the composition of the downtown neighborhood that we find ourselves in. And so we, sure, we're an art center. We work with artists. We're always looking to represent what feels like the current set of questions that we are grappling with. And... We are doing so in a community that is also trying to figure out how people come together again. What does downtown look like? What are the hours of service where we find the most people coming into our spaces? And so we have a very local set of questions in addition to these more interesting, what is the role of an arts institution in a community set of questions? To me, I love the opportunity to find yourself in a position where the work you are doing every day feels connected to the things you value. That's the holy grail. I think there's a lot of really good work to be done if we can find ourselves in that sort of alignment. My values reside in what is the contribution I can make in this community? Can I make it better? Can I make it more stable? And do I find enjoyment in that? Which I do. 
and I don't know that I have advice that I can necessarily offer, right? But I can sort of share that, you know, pre-pandemic, the place I was in my career, again, fortunate, just like Sarah, to have had a series of experiences where I was steeped in values alignment with doing work that actually mattered and knowing that it had lasting kind of contribution and impact. I also, ironically, before Sarah and I met, was also part of a relief fund in the post 9-11 recovery efforts. And that's where I started my career in philanthropy. And it was incredibly impactful, very community-centered, sort of uh, intense in a very palpable way, right? Because you're in the middle of this incredible city that literally now has this physical gaping hole and everything that went into kind of making sense of that, figuring out what needs to happen in the short term, what needs to happen in the long term, and that all of us to this day, right, have a story and a very palpable sense of something changed that day for us as a country, I would say even probably us as a world, and figuring out how to navigate your way through that situation and doing it in community and with other people, that wayfinding and sense-making, I think is an incredibly powerful thing if you can also have that actually integrated as part of your professional journey. So in a lot of ways, what Sarah is saying about YBCA and the moment we find ourselves in and the mission that we have, again, this very beautiful place and platform to explore, like, what does healing look like for us? What does the way forward look like for us? Even this question, Tim, that you're asking, I don't know that I have a point of view right now. I just think it's interesting that before the pandemic, I had made a decision to really lean into family life and had decided to stop working full time. And in the middle of me asking myself this question of like, what would I like to do going forward? What would, what does my next chapter look like? The pandemic was in the middle of that question for me. My son had just started kindergarten in the middle of a pandemic. And when he started kindergarten, I said, look, I'm going to try and figure out what my next steps are. And now the labor market and just how work is structured is completely being changed as we speak. And things like flex time, whereas a mom, you would think about that and you'd have to figure out how to negotiate that. And you'd have to be like, okay, will these people give me what I need? It's not even it's not even a question anymore. It's like very much so now normed that you can demand that, that we should demand that. And that these tools, things like Zoom and other things that were held skeptically, like working remotely, not coming into the office all of the time, having asynchronous work and synchronous work. I mean, all of this, even in the vernacular, these were not the things that I was conversing with my friends about as I was thinking like, okay, how do I explore what I might do next? I was actually very much tethered to the old structures because that's how I've been conditioned to navigate. And so actually what I'm most excited about is to embrace the fact that some of these rules are no longer going to stick. I don't know what's going to happen or emerge in their place but I have a lot of faith in the fact that there's so many more people in this conversation together and that there's so many more both employers and employees trying to navigate the way forward. And it's a very uncertain time, but at the same time, a very promising time, because I think some of the solutions we end up playing with and coming up with, I do believe will serve our well-being uh, more effectively in the long run. 
There's something that Renika's saying that I really appreciate having moved to the West Coast from California. It's almost like there's a couple adaptations in her storyline. One, moving to California from the East Coast, which we both did within a couple of years of each other. In New York, and I think in many other places, your life is your work. And here, your work is more of a portfolio of activities. I think of this as sort of being a a place that's much more forgiving for people doing projects or project-based work. I think about films, I think about startups. Like California is a very different work environment. I remember moving here, my friends from New York were like, aren't you worried that you don't know what you're going to do yet? And I'm like, no, that is not the vibe that is happening here. And I think there's this additional adaptation of the last couple of years of the modes of work, the modes of how you structure the different types of activities that you might have in your portfolio. And what I really like about what Renika is saying is this additional layer of noticing a person's full life and experience, not just your work activities, but really all of the parts of your day-to-day, month-to-month life that are meaningful for you and how they add up together, the flexibility around that. And there's a tone thing in there, which feels like like a reluctance to feeling like things are daunting, like a resistance to feeling controlled and maybe an openness to figuring it out, an openness to feeling supported as you figure it out that I really just want to underscore. Those are not conversations we were having 20 years ago when we started on this journey together. Those are conversations that have matured in the course of our work lifetimes, if you will. Also, as someone who lived in New York for quite a while, one of the very first times I went to California, someone asked me what I did for recreation as a way of introduction. And it was like that moment where I'm like, oh my God, I know I do stuff, but like, what do I, what do I answer for this question? Because there's usually in New York, it's like, yeah, what do you do? Meaning, yeah, you know, what do you do for work? And that recreation really, you know, threw me for a loop where I'm like, uh, I do, I do things. I'm sure I do things. Um, I own a bike. Uh, I'll say I, I, I bike. And I, I think that's, that's, that probably was, you know, 20 years ago. And to your point, people are talking about work and life in different ways now, especially Renika, to your point, like some of the things that seemed very rare have been baked into the way a number of people are able to work. And I imagine there's that site where you can track words as they show up in literature. And I imagine you'd see a massive spike if you search for asynchronous over the past like three years, because how many times do we talk about asynchronous work You know, before the pandemic? I'm curious, you both have touched on this a little bit, but thinking more specifically to the work at YBCA that you do in this place that has a a physical location, a mandate that's baked into the charter to do work that's located in space, having come through the pandemic, wherein when you mentioned that San Francisco was closed for cultural institutions for the most part. And this past year in particular, as, as San Francisco, the world has started to open up, things have been presented in maybe new, but also familiar ways. What's that been like for both of you and for the organization? YBCA is a really interesting case of, there's the, I think of the work we did before the pandemic as being grounded in our building, in our physical presence, and really being a special place where I witnessed and felt like I was a part of many different types of people and communities coming together. That's why I kept coming back. To me, it was the most interesting room of people I could find in this town. And then during the pandemic, we learned how to do all these other things that did not require a physical presence. And when I look at those things now, I think about the ways we sort of built the depth of our practice, 
We built digital tools to connect artists to opportunities. We ran a guaranteed income pilot. We distributed grant money from the state. We did much deeper work than just what shows up in the building. Because what shows up in the building can be different day to day, depends on who's here, depending what's on the walls, who's on the stage. This other, what I think of as more ecosystem level work, it's invisible in terms of showing up in the building, but it's not invisible about what is showing up in terms of goodwill in our community and the ways in which we're taken seriously by the creative community in particular. So for me, the last year of reopening has been really about how do we find the best parts of our practice when we are open and in what is invisible? And truly, I mean, we have a team that's also very different than before the pandemic because we've added all of these areas. How do we create a culture that allows for both? Both the important work that goes on in the building that is visible and the work that is less visible to perhaps visitors coming from the convention center across the street. And how do we balance the resources of an institution and the storytelling around how we make our choices to reflect that combined practice? It's been a lot. But I think, I can't think that it ever is going to hurt us to have done work that is valuable to the artists in this community that broadened our practice and the depth of our practice. And so I would say it's still a work in progress. Like many organizations, we are thinking about technology and the use of to make us more efficient. We are talking about the ways we invest in our team and composition of our team. But fundamentally, I feel very good about the things that this organization decided to resource during the pandemic and how they then can come together with a reopened environment. This period has really positioned us to be in a both and moment. In a lot of ways, the same answer to the question that you asked about just making sense of work and how you navigate that. In, in the same vein, we now, as an organization, are trying to reconcile the bets that we made during the pandemic, reconcile that with our deep purpose and mission and who we're obligated to serve, and try and figure out, just like a lot of arts and culture organizations, the brass tacks of it is like how to keep the lights on and how to keep the doors open and how to make sure that we are a place that more and more people are gravitating towards at a time when people are sort of limited in what they're choosing to do. Like we're open, like, and I say the world, we're open, but now we're also dealing with the fact that people are very selective because of the pandemic in terms of what they do with their time, where they go, who they interact with. And at the same time, we have this tremendous opportunity, again, to be a cultural resource for the entire community as they're making sense of what has gone on for the past few years and trying to figure out like where do they want to spend time that really gives them a rich, deep experience and one that we obviously have really started to pride ourselves on, which is that's one that's participatory, that you come through the doors of YBCA and there's something different that happens in your experience because you become a part of it. And for us to sustain those kinds of experiences for the future is both an incredibly exciting question for us to wrestle with and an opportunity for our community to sort of solidify that that is how people identify with YBCA. And just very practically, I mean, I think of it as 
I go to some institutions to go see a show, right? Like I want to go see something specific, whether it's theater, whether it's dance, whether it's art on the walls, if you will. But I'm very purpose driven in why I might go to see something. I have to book a ticket in advance. I have to think about it. I go on a whole journey to like arrange to be there for a thing. I think about YBCA very differently, actually, in where I hope we get. And I hope that we get to a point where you can know that you reliably show up at YBCA whenever and something really interesting is going to be going on. You don't actually have to plan or arrange as meticulously as you might to go to some other things. You can just know that there is going to be cool stuff happening here that's going to change the way you look at the world, the community, your role in it, etc. And I'll feel successful when we have arranged to get to that place where that same feeling of showing up in a room and feeling like the most exciting people in town, we're all here together, can be something that happens without a lot of prearrangement. You don't have to necessarily jump through all the hoops. You can just roll in off the street and something here will be on offer and ideally something that feels engaging for you to run at this point. We talked about regional difference and how people might think about life and work. I'm curious more specifically about arts organizations or nonprofits, maybe more you know, in, in general. Do you notice any differences in how arts organizations and maybe nonprofits approach the work that they do in the Bay Area than maybe, say, New York City or from you know, the Midwest, where we all find you know, some of our roots as well? I think with the Bay Area, what I'll say is, first of all, that the amount of capital required to operate in this ecosystem is just has to be underscored. The sheer real estate that we occupy, the city blocks that we, you know, are located amongst in San Francisco, it's a very well-trafficked area. And so just to situate ourselves in the physical and kind of economic context, Beyond that, I would say that one of the things in the Bay that I've appreciated so much and that has been very opening for me and I think a lot of other people in the social entrepreneurship space is this appetite for risk taking and that it's very much baked into the kind of Silicon Valley innovation spine, if you will, that has, again, sort of pluses and minuses, just like everything else. But I do think that in general, the propensity for people having an appetite for trying things differently, for consuming things differently, for interacting in different ways, it's very much so laid into kind of the cultural fabric and ethos of this region. And I think that that, again, strengthens our position as a cultural institution, because it allows us to also ensure that we are giving ourselves the maximum permission within that same context and frame to do things differently, to try new things, to support artists in different ways, which feels really true to what we've done during the pandemic and what we hope to invest in to align ourselves and position ourselves for the future. This is a different type of ecosystem in terms of who joins boards, how much people meet about what's going on in town. You know, New York, when I look at 
what those years looked like for me. There was an endless stream of Crane's New York breakfasts, benefits with people who were on one board honoring somebody on another board. There's like this heavily regimented institutional showing up thing that happens in terms of business leadership, nonprofit leadership, civic leadership. It's like every day of the week you could go do stuff like that. And this town is a little bit less like that. You have to work a little harder to find your alliances, to find common ground with people. I don't think you can make the same set of assumptions about everyone's intentions to show up civically. I mean, Renica's point is so right on in terms of rejecting convention, willingness to try new things, etc. Part of what we don't have because we are that place is this through line of participation. And so a lot of what we have to do on our own individually as institutions is develop those networks of participation, which I think some places can take for granted as institutions that are sort of passed generation to generation. Well, in the spirit of trying new things, trying different things, right now, YBCA is in the process of hiring for a brand new role, a head of external relations. And I'll offer full full disclosure here. I know this because YBCA has contracted work shouldn't suck to be involved in a really exciting value-centering process. The organization has had leadership roles focused on fundraising and focused on marketing and communication spaces in the past, but combining them into this head of external relations role is a new approach for YBCA. So I'm wondering why create this role and what opportunities does this new role signal for YBCA? I'm excited about this search because what I see is the opportunity to really combine our storytelling and cultivation efforts. We have incredible stories to tell about the impact that this organization has had not only on the lives of individual artists, but on this community. Great example, we currently have a show that features Brett Cook. Brett is a local artist. He also calls himself an educator and a healer. This is a culminating show that includes decades of his work. He's in this show with Liz Lerman, who is also showcasing decades of her work. Brett first showed his work at YBCA when it was under construction. He spray painted the outside perimeter of the building. There are pieces of that work here in this show. When I think about the impact that YBCA, we turn 30 next year, has had on this community and the lives of individual artists, I'm not sure that we're telling that story or inviting people to be a part of it as effectively as we might. And so this role really is front and center in connecting those dots so that the public artists that we work with and funders are all getting the benefit of the same story in terms of the impact that this organization has. And to me, that's super exciting. It's like, you know, you hear about these donor tables where they separate out the people funding the work and the people receiving the funds. We're pulling it all together. We want to tell really, really strong stories about our work and equip somebody in this role to do so really consistently across the audiences that we serve so that our funders are really invited into the full story and really called to the table of the work that we're doing as a community institution. And so for me, this is a boundary lowering role with a really delicious challenge of how to portray the work that we're doing in a city that I think would benefit from a little TLC and a little 
a little love in terms of the ways in which we can come together and the benefit that that can have for this community. And if I might, the ways in which San Franciscans in particular view that work in the context of a country. It is very much the case here that we are proud of our COVID response. It is very much the case here that we are proud of the former mayor, now governor, putting gay marriage into place. Like there is a thing about this town that is willing to lean in and be really progressive as a beacon for other places. And so to me, this role is a huge opportunity for the right person to do that with us. What this signals really for us as an institution is that we are integrating and sort of removing silos the way that that we sort of worked in the past and trying to really allow this person to kind of assume that leadership mantle and become kind of a very strong voice inward and outward, I would say. And just as Sarah said, there is a treasure trove of stories to share about YBCA's impact over the past 30 years. So it's just such an incredibly ripe moment for us to have somebody who comes in and really does what Sarah and I have talked about. This is really foundational work for YBCA's next decade. It's not even about just a short period of time, but it's sort of, you get to have the opportunity to look back on 30 years of incredible work and weave that together to then form the foundation for what happens for the next decade and how YBCA is now sort of perceived and received, you know, externally, which we have not been in the position to do over the past few years because we've been responding to the pandemic Before the pandemic, we were talking about and trying to position ourselves to try some new things, try things differently. And again, this moment is really for this person to help us synthesize a lot of what's happened, make sense of it, and showcase truly from one voice, one story for all of us to then be ambassadors of. So it's really groundbreaking and defining work for us. To me, the gauntlet to throw down is... This job is made for somebody who wants to explore this delicious question of what is the role of an art center in a community? What is the fullest potential of a center like YBCA in a community, in a community that is fractured in some ways, is progressive in other ways, in a country where the same is the case? We are a model for a lot of things. We are relied upon to experiment. So what is the full extent of that experimentation as it applies to our storytelling efforts and the ways in which that shows up in the engagement and cohesion and exposure of a community? So recently, YBCA began in earnest its work to understand how racism and oppression are woven into the DNA of the organization. And it's a frequent topic on the Workshop Suck podcast, where we discuss how this shows up in systems, structures, policies, practices, programs, and, and workplaces, who's included, who's not, how do we shift power differentials? And with this knowledge, how do we co-create workplaces where everyone can thrive? I'd love for both of you to share a bit about why YBCA has begun engaging in, in this learning and work and why this commitment to anti-racism is critical to it achieving its mission. I think one of the observations of having been closed and specifically having started guaranteed income work is that we've learned in some ways that our insides don't match our outside ambitions. 
we say that we're doing work in community and the ways that we've designed that work has not always been satisfactory to the communities that we're working with, if I'm going to be really honest. We have a big accountability statement on our website that can elaborate on that if you're interested. But I think that there is an observation born out of a lot of that for me, and also just born out of switching from the board chair role to the internal role where I have a lot more information, that we have a real ambition to show up in a way that does feel anti-racist and anti-oppression. And we do not have the systems to support that. And so we need to do this work internally ourselves in order to show up the way that we aspire to for ourselves, but also for our community. And until we do, we will keep finding things that don't work for us or for others. And so really for our staff, for ourselves, for our partners, for the artists we work with, I have a strong opinion that we need to look in the mirror and make sure that the ways in which we're turning up every day honor the experiences of our team of our partners, of the artists that we work with. And we have work to do. You know, I made a reference earlier to just using technology to pick a simple example. And I would offer, we're an arts organization that hasn't embraced systems or process. And at first coming into this role, I found that really frustrating. I didn't, it was hard to understand how things worked, if you will. I've now come around to the point of view that we can build systems that are equitable from the jump if we take this work very seriously. And to me, that's doing it right. To begin to peel that onion, to know what systems we need to build, we have to start asking ourselves the questions. And so for me, for this team to be successful, for this organization to be successful, that work starts from within. Each of us, each team, and the whole organization and the ways in which we work. From the board's perspective, plus one to everything Sarah said, and that we, from a governance perspective, have a fiduciary responsibility. And I think that this is what what I hope we can add value around in, in sort of the arts ecosystem is that boards start to hold themselves accountable to ensuring that systems and policies and procedures are continually assessed on an annual basis so that what we are offering, whatever we design, whatever the the sort of internal examination is of making sure that we have equitable practices. So there's a phase of the work of understanding where we are, where we need to improve. And then once we're on that journey, that we really want to make sure in order for this to, to have staying power, it's independent of any leadership team and independent of the board composition because it is baked into the set of responsibilities that on an annual basis, for example, we are examining pay parity. And we are talking in in conversation with the management team about those kinds of policies and procedures at a systemic level so that no one individual has to endure or bear the brunt of a systemic issue And teasing that apart is the work that we're in right now and calling the board into showing up for making sure that we have an eye on the systemic structure is how we hope to make it a practice that outlives any one of us and that allows any individual walking into YBCA, whether you're a new employee or a longtime employee, knowing that those systemic factors are taken care of and are addressed on an annual basis, because as we all know, this work is dynamic and ongoing. 
And so there's first kind of taking that slice of what can we design intentionally, equitably, and then there's the maintenance of that and ensuring that any one individual does not have to navigate that on their own. No surprise here. Our time has flown by. As we bring the conversation in for a landing today, where do you want to land it? I mean, Tim, I just, I want to thank you. You've been such a huge part of our time here. And, you know, I think it's important in these moments of challenge to find optimism. I don't know that any of us have gotten through our hardest moments without it. One of the things that I find a lot of optimism around is that I think our community wants us to succeed. I feel great that I have a partner like Renica in the work that we're doing here. I feel really great about a team that's motivated by the work that we're doing. And if anything, I think we're just looking to recruit to the team. And if this kind of work, whether you're on the receiving end or the construction end, is appealing, I mean, join the party. There's plenty of room in this tent. God knows we have enough work to do. Please follow IBCA. We are grateful for all of the engagement. I would echo everything Sarah said and just truly underscore the exciting moment that we're in. We are in a building moment, a build and design. And so it's really kind of a really beautiful opportunity for somebody to, anybody actually, to join our team and to help us design things in a way that, again, you will look back 10 years from now and say, wow, like I was a part of making that happen. I was a part of laying some of the groundwork for this to continually be a way in which YBCA continues to manifest itself. And I really can't think of a better opportunity to do that while also being fed truly by being able to interrogate and to excavate the best parts of our impact over the last 30 years, as we turn 30, it's just, I love reflection and introspection and what that offers. And especially amidst a challenging time, because it really is grounding. And that is where so much of the hope and optimism lives is in the art and in the impact. And this is an opportunity for somebody to come in, hit the ground running, really shape things, really become a voice for us as an institution and allow all of us to show up as incredible ambassadors as a result. So awesome. Renika and Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives, for your vulnerability, for your openness, for your genuineness. And thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Tim, for having us. To learn more about Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, visit them online at ybca.org or on the socials at YBCA. If you or someone you know might be interested in applying for their new head of external relations role, find out more about the opportunity, including staff videos talking about why this role is an important addition to the YBCA team over on workshouldnsuck.co slash YBCA hyphen ER. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. Until next time, thanks for listening.